Today on Categorical Imperatives, I have a new installment of my favorite series to do here on the show today in Supreme Court history. And today we are going to be looking at the 2005 case of Gonzalez versus Rach. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, I am your host, Blocky and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the show, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, if you guys dig what I do here and you want to help play an active role in helping me to develop this channel, to reach more people, and to have a richer discussion about law and philosophy, I would greatly appreciate your help, especially maybe considering going and joining as a patron over on my brand new Patreon page, where for as little as two bucks a month, you will get all kinds of extra goodies uh, from a show notes page to a guaranteed topic request and more. So if you are able and willing, I would be very grateful for your support. And if you are not in a place to do that, Right now, that's fine. I still appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time with me all the same. Uh, and that goes for whether you are a brand new viewer or a long time subscriber. So now that I'm done whoring myself out, let's get to the topic for today. So it was this week in 2005 that the, the Supreme Court handed down its opinion in the case of Gonzalez versus Rach. This was a case that found that marijuana grown and used by an individual that never entered any sort of uh, sale, trade, or barter is still a regulable activity under Congress's powers to regulate interstate commerce. Now, many people struggle to make any kind of sense out of this ruling, and so this seemed like maybe an opportune time to reflect on this case, its background, its context, its outcome, and to show the reason that people can't seem to find any sensible underlying constitutional doctrine, the main reason is because they're always usually looking in the entirely wrong place. But we will be getting into that a little bit later. First, let's establish the basics here. In 1996, California passed the Compassionate Use Act, which legalized and regulated marijuana for medical use. Now, the, uh, the activities authorized by California's laws, however, still violated the Controlled Substance Act, and this was the federal law that banned the cultivation, possession, and distribution of marijuana. So in 1998, the federal government sued to enjoin the operation of the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Club, the OCBC. Uh, the OCBC argued that the CSA, that's the Controlled Substance Act, exceeded Congress's powers under the Commerce Clause. However, there was an obstacle to this claim since money and marijuana were clearly exchanging hands in the cooperative. There was clearly an economic activity here. Uh, and indeed, these payments would have to at least be seen as intrastate commerce. Now, Robert Rach, a member of the OCBC uh, legal team, proposed an alternative strategy to bring a lawsuit on behalf of Californians who cultivated and possessed marijuana 
as authorized by California law, but who never bought or sold the drug. Now, Robert already had someone in mind, and that would be his wife, Angel Rach, who had been suffering from several intractable illnesses, including a brain tumor, which had caused a wasting syndrome with her. And her weight loss genuinely threatened her life. Now, a nurse suggested she try marijuana. And the controlled substance allowed Rach to regain her strength. Uh, another uh, plaintiff, Diane Monson, enjoined uh, she was another Californian who used medical marijuana to relieve her back pain and spasms, uh, which had not responded to other conventional therapies. Now, because the federal government had seized Monson's plants, she had a concrete injury and therefore had legal standing to bring the challenge. Now, their legal team filed a civil suit to halt the enforcement of the CSA against Rach and Monson. Critically, neither patient had ever purchased marijuana. Angel's caregivers grew the cannabis and gave it to her at no charge. And Diane Monson grew her own plants and thus did not have to even get it from anyone else. Now, the plaintiffs contended that under the limiting principle of implied powers in Lopez and Morrison, Congress could not regulate this entirely intrastate non-economic activity. Furthermore, because no items used to cultivate the marijuana had traveled in interstate commerce, there was no jurisdictional hook. And for those of you who don't remember a jurisdictional hook, we talked about this in my past video about USV Lopez, uh, which might be worth going to revisit. But just real quick, a jurisdictional hook is a statutory clause requiring that a regulated activity of intrastate economic activity have a connection with interstate commerce. And this is a limiting principle, and this is key to something that has been dubbed new federalism, which is really uh, exemplified by the cases of U.S. v. Lopez and U.S. v. Morrison. Now, Angel and Diane lost in the Northern District Court of California, but prevailed in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, the case was appealed to the Supreme Court by the Solicitor General of the Bush administration, Paul Clement. Now, Rach and Monson were represented by Randy Barnett. And the government contended that in Wickard versus Filburn, uh, the 1942 case, supported the constitutionality of the Controlled Substance Act. Clement argued that the local cultivation of marijuana was indeed an economic activity because homegrown marijuana substituted for marijuana that could have been purchased in the interstate marketplace. This framework was known as a market substitute theory, and that is that an activity is economic when it substitutes for a market activity. Now, Randy Barnett responded that Wickard was distinguishable because unlike Rach or Monson, Filburn was engaged in commercial farming specifically the feeding and marketing of his livestock, were economic activity. Furthermore, in U.S. v. Lopez and U.S. v. Morrison, they had already rejected any theory of enumerated powers that lacked a judicially administered limiting principle. That is the jurisdictional hook we were just talking about. Essentially, 
If anything that serves as a substitute for a good or service obtained to the market can be considered uh, economic, Barnett contended, there would be no limitation whatsoever on Congress's powers. Nearly every single activity we do for ourselves would also be provided as a commercial service. Now, during oral arguments, some of the justices did seem open to this market substitute theory. Uh, Justice Souter, for example, suggested that an activity could be economic if it had an economic effect on the national economy. He then compared the effect of the homegrown marijuana would have in the interstate marketplace with Filburn's homegrown wheat. However, Randy Barnett replied that the mere fact that they may have an effect on the economic market does not make them economic activities. And to identify when an activity is economic, he explained, you have to look at the activity itself. What is an economic activity? An activity associated with exchange, sale, or barter, or an activity for the production of things for sale, exchange, or barter. Now, Barnett offered a great hypothetical. He observed uh, that prostitution is indeed an economic activity. However, marital relations are not an economic activity, even though we are talking about virtually the same act. Now, the fact that there is a market for prostitution does not make any substitute for what can be exchanged uh, in that market as far as marital sex goes. For an example, marital sex cannot be considered in any way an economic activity. And it was after this exchange that the justices did seem to drop the market substitute theory for economic activity. Now, ultimately, the court ruled for the government by a vote of six to three with the four progressive justices who had uh, voted against Lopez and Morrison being joined by two of the conservative justices, uh, that is Scalia and Kennedy, who had voted in favor of those limiting cases of Lopez and Morrison. And in the case, Justice Stevens wrote the majority opinion. He did not adopt that government market substitute theory Instead, he found that Lopez and Morrison authorized Congress to regulate the local cultivation of marijuana to support this broad conception of economic activity. Justice Stevens, I swear to God, relied on Webster's Third New International Dictionary. It defined economic as the production distribution, and consumption of commodities. And so, because Angel's caregiver and Diane were engaged in activity of producing marijuana, according to Webster's Dictionary, that they were engaged in economic activity. Therefore, under Lopez and Morrison, Congress could regulate their intrastate activity. As a result, he said, the Controlled Substance Act was constitutional, as applied to the locally cultivated marijuana. Now, Justice Stevens also adopted an alternative holding. He said that in Lopez, Chief Justice Rehnquist had mentioned in passing 
that the Gun-Free School Zone Act was not an essential part of a large regulation of economic activity in which the regulatory scheme could be undercut unless the intrastate activity were regulated. Now, in Rach, Justice Stevens announced a new rule based on the observation that, quote, Congress has the power to regulate purely local activities when doing so is necessary to implement a comprehensive national regulatory program. So unlike the Gun-Free School Zone Act, the Controlled Substance Act was indeed a comprehensive program. Now, Justice Scalia did not join with the majority opinion, which relied on Webster's fucking dictionary to define economic. He only concurred with the court's judgment that the CSA could be applied to both Raich and Monson, nor did Scalia adopt the government's market substitute of economic activity. Rather, according to Scalia, Congress could regulate some local non-economic activity as part of a larger, larger regulation of interstate commerce, whether or not that local activity had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Now, crucially, Scalia thought that the courts must defer to Congress's judgment. The legislature and not the judiciary should decide whether the regulation of local non-economic conduct, in this case, the cultivation of local marijuana, that was neither bought nor sold, was an essential part of the CSA's regulatory scheme. Congress could reasonably conclude, Justice Scalia wrote, that its objective of prohibiting local marijuana from the interstate market could be undercut if those activities were expected from its general scheme of regulation. Justice Scalia stressed that this doctrine derived from the limits of Congress's power under the Necessary and Proper Clause, not the Commerce Clause. And that part there is really crucial. Now that is, Congress should ask if a local activity was essential or necessary to a broader regulatory scheme. Now, Justice O'Connor, on the other hand, dissented in rage. She rejected the court's broad definition of economic, which threatened to sweep away all of productive human activity into federal regulatory reach. She also objected that the court used a dictionary definition of economics to skirt the real problem of drawing a meaningful line between what is a national and what is a local market. Now here, O'Connor cited NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel, 1937 case. She also questioned whether the court should defer to Congress's claims that reaching local activity was essential to the Controlled Substance Act regulatory scheme, and if the court, she said, always deferred to Congress as it does today, little may be left to the notion of enumerated powers. Now, Chief Justice Brinkwist joined Justice O'Connor's dissent. At the time, he was too ill from cancer to attend oral arguments. As far as we know, he likely participated in a private conference by telephone, and unfortunately, the Chief Justice died three months after the Raich case was handed down in 2005. Now, Justice Thomas also dissented in his separate opinion. He repeated the view that he gave both in Lopez and in Morrison. 
and that was that the court should abandon the substantial effects test altogether. Their approach was not consistent with the original meaning of Congress's enumerated powers. He wrote, quote, Respondents Monson and Raich use marijuana that has never been bought or sold, that never crossed state lines, and that has had no demonstrable effect on the national market for marijuana. Thomas continued, if Congress can regulate this under the Commerce Clause, they can regulate virtually anything, and the federal government is no longer one of enumerated powers. Now, Lopez and Morrison represented an attempt to put the brakes on an expansion of the New Deal and the Warren Courts Doctrine governing implied federal power. Congress could only regulate intrastate activity that had a substantial effect on interstate commerce if the, if the activity was economic in nature. However, Raich modified that doctrine. Now, Congress can regulate even non-economic activity as part of a broader regulatory scheme. And in Raich, the court seemed to authorize an expansion of the congressional power beyond that which the New Deal court had recognized in Wickard. Uh, Barnett very correctly predicted as much during oral arguments in Raich when he told the justices that if they accepted the government's rationale to uphold the regulation of homegrown marijuana, then Raich will replace Wickard as the most far-reaching example of Commerce Clause authority over interstate commerce. And that's exactly what happened. Now, after Raich, one might have agreed with Justice Thomas that there was no activity Congress could not regulate so long as it was an essential part of a larger regulatory scheme. Then, in 2010, Congress passed the comprehensive regulatory scheme called the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and in the case of NFIB versus Sebelius in 2012, they would consider the constitutionality of that law. But that is a case for another day. Now, getting back to Rach, where people all too often go all wrong when looking at this case is by making a common mistake of taking two separate constitutional clauses. This is the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause, and they collapse them down and make these two distinct clauses into one clause, then look for the power to regulate in a case under only the Commerce Clause. But what is key to understand is the Commerce Clause has not expanded, like at all. It, it really hasn't. It has not expanded since it was first defined by the court in the 1824 case of Gibbons versus Ogden, which I've also made a video about. If you don't know that case, that would be worth go check it out. That's one of my more favorite uh, videos from today in Supreme Court history, actually. Um, but yeah, in that case, John Marshall defined commerce as, quote, trade or intercourse, end quote, end quote. And even in cases that everyone concludes are massive expansions of the Commerce Clause, such as Wickard v. Filburn, or such as we have here in Gonzalez v. Rage. The thing is, commerce still means the same thing it did back in Gibbons in 1824. 
it is not the Commerce Clause that has expanded. It is Congress's implied powers through the Necessary and Proper Clause that has been doing the heavy lifting in cases such as Wickard and Rake. Now, the key to getting this is to understand three really uncontestable principles uh, or propositions of implied powers. And the first one is the economic-non-economic distinction established in Lopez that qualifies the substantial effect doctrine. The second one is the substantial effect doctrine was the first uh, established and developed in the case of NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel, United States v. Darby, and Wickard v. Filburn. Uh, and just so you guys know, I actually published uh, an article last year called Three, uh, Three Supreme Court Cases That Twisted the Commerce Clause uh, that discusses those three cases and the substantial effects doctrine uh, that's uh, published over at the Tenth Amendment Center, and I will put a link to that article in the description. So if you are curious about uh, those cases or the substantial effects doctrine, that is a really, really good introduction to all of that. Uh, I would recommend checking that out. But anyway, the third key proposition to understand is that in these New Deal cases, the, con the power of Congress to reach interstate activity that had a substantial effect on interstate commerce was justified by invoking McCulloch versus Maryland and the Necessary and Proper Clause. For example, in Wickard versus Filburn, the court wrote, Even if appellee's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. In other words, Congress could reach beyond its powers of interstate commerce to reach an intrastate activity that was not commerce because it was necessary to the execution of his commerce power. Now, in taking in these three propositions, this should lead you to a conclusion that is not widely recognized. And that is that there is the necessary prong of the necessary and proper clause is already being limited by a judicially administratable doctrine, and that is the economic-non-economic distinction. So to execute its commerce power under the existing Necessary and Proper Clause doctrine, Congress may only reach interstate economic activity that substantially affects interstate commerce, and according to this settled doctrine, however, however necessary it might be, However necessary it might otherwise be, it cannot reach interstate non-economic activity. Therefore, a claim that Congress can reach inactivity uh, that substantially affects interstate commerce because it is necessary will still go beyond the outer reaches of the necessary and proper clause as established by Lopez and reaffirmed in Morrison. And the source of the confusion here, I, I believe, it is largely that in Lopez, Chief Justice Rehnquist did not bring up the necessary and proper clause underpinnings to the substantial effects doctrine. But he does ex expressly 
trace it back to the New Deal cases cited above, which are uh, cases that deal with the necessary and proper clause, as I stated. However, though Rehnquist didn't make that clear in Lopez, Scalia made it very clear in his concurring opinion in Rach. And this is how he put it. Our cases show that the regulation of interstate activities may be necessary and proper for the regulation of interstate commerce in two general circumstances. Most directly, the commerce power permits Congress to not only devise rules for government of com- or rules for the governance of commerce between states, but also to facilitate interstate commerce by eliminating potential obstructions and to restrict it by eliminating potential stimulants. And again, CNLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel. And that is why the court has repeatedly sustained congressional legislation on the grounds that the regulated activities had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Lopez and Morrison recognized the expansive power of Congress's authority in this regard. He says the pattern is clear. Where economic activity substantially affects interstate commerce, legislation regulating that activity will be sustained. Now, there is an intrinsic value in understanding these distinctions that goes beyond pure intellectual curiosity, because once we know where the expansive powers come from, only then are we able to identify a limiting principle to that expansion. So, when Justice Rehnquist devised his economic-non-economic distinction, uh, limiting the substantial effects doctrine of the necessary and proper clause, he did so by looking back and finding that in all previous substantial effects doctrine cases that there was a clear pattern that they all involved the regulation of interstate economic activity. And that every case in which the necessary and proper clause case was used to reach beyond interstate commerce involved uh, activity. Congress never before sought to reach beyond activity to reach inactivity. So that provides the requisite limiting doctrine to the yet-to-be-applied essential to a broader regulatory scheme doctrine proposed by Justice Scalia. I hope that makes sense. I know that's kind of a mouthful there. Um, But essentially, like the economic-non-economic distinction, such a doctrine would provide a judicially administratable limit to the scope of necessary under the necessary and proper clause without requiring judicial examination of the more or less necessity of a measure which the court has refrained from doing. It provides a trinal limit to prevent Congress from reaching matters that are remote from its power over interstate commerce, regardless of the degree of remoteness in any given case, which the courts will not assess. That is going to do it for me here today. I I hope you found that interesting. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you maybe learned a little bit something new about the relationship of the necessary and proper clause and the commerce clause and uh, how to more properly look at what people think is a commerce clause expansion 
there really isn't um so anyway let me know what you think down in the description uh please leave me a comment let me know what you thought about this video uh i mean whether you liked it or not i'd be interested to hear whatever you guys got to say uh and whether you liked it or not give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down either way i'm not going to tell you what to do um but yeah anyways uh until next time i have been locking and liberal this has been categorical imperatives we have been talking about the case of gonzalez versus rage for today in supreme court history and of course as always delenda s carthago